Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. On Wednesday nights, by the way, you're invited to come out as we're going through the Bible, and we're now in the book of Psalms, and been having a great time going through the Psalms, and so encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to come out, to join us for those studies. They've been really enriching, at least to me. And uh, here on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Galatians, kind of crawling through, and we've come to verse 6 of chapter 2 of Galatians. And I planned and, and I intend to go through five verses or so, verses 6 through 10. But after the more I studied, I realized that there are kind of three sermons, because chapter 6 turned into a message by itself, and then verses 7 through 9, another message, and verse 10, another one entirely. So I'm just going to give three messages this morning, and we'll get out of here about 2 o'clock. I, I thought about not doing it, but I really want to finish the book of Galatians before the rapture, and the rapture is coming before the end of 2006, so I'm going on record in saying that. And uh, so... I'd like to finish Galatians before it happens, and so we'll just move our... I'm just kidding. I don't know when the rapture's coming. But these verses, to bring you up to snuff on where we've been, the book of Galatians was written because Paul had shared the good news, the gospel. The, uh, the good news, he explains, is the fact that Jesus Christ came as God, and He died for us, and He rose from the dead, and He paid for our sins, and we don't have to do anything to fix our sins other than to allow Him to do that work of grace in our life. We don't have to earn our salvation. It's free. It's a gift from God. Well, He taught that gospel, and it was good news indeed to them. The word gospel means good news. What happened in those churches in Galatia, these Gentiles who lived up there in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, some other people came in, some Jewish people came up from Jerusalem and told them, you know, Paul told you the truth, but it's not the whole story. The truth is, yes, Jesus died for you, rose from the dead, forgives your sins. But the other side of it is you need to obey the law. You need to do what the law says you need to do. You need to abide by certain rules and regulations that we are going to put on you. And one of those is the rite of circumcision. Not a popular thing for new adult converts. It's not something that we're going to be offering as an extension to our Israel tour in June. It's just, and they were like, what do we do? It's, is this the case? Is, does the gospel mean that we also have to become Jewish? And so Paul wrote this letter to remind them the gospel is very simple. It's the grace of God. It's what he has done for you, not what you need to do for him. God isn't, to trying, to, isn't trying to get you to jump through hoops. He doesn't need for people to make up a bunch of rules. It's the simplicity of the gospel. We need to stick with that. And in chapter 1, he said, if you add to it, it's not good news anymore. If you take away from it, it's not good news anymore. He pronounces a curse, an anathema, on anyone who would modify the terms of the gospel, the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he explains to them, this isn't something that people made up. This wasn't like a bunch of disciples got together and invented a religion. This is something that was revealed by God. And he emphasizes it's a relationship with God that is deeply personal. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 1 and go into chapter 2, we find that, well, what naturally takes place, when you have a, something so simple and something that involves a personal relationship, people are going to have differences. 
rather than focus on the centrality of the truth, if I say, I feel God telling me this, and you say God's telling you that, problems occur. And so he, in chapter 2, kind of explains and gives some examples of differences that happened because of the independence of the work of God in our lives. And so he talks about this event probably described in Acts chapter 15 when he and Barnabas, and they took Titus with them, a Gentile uh, pastor, and they went down to Jerusalem to confront the accusation that had come up that says, you're not teaching the whole truth because you're not putting people under the law. You're having cheap grace. And so they went down, and, and we saw last week in the first few verses of chapter 2 how there were kind of two categories of people. On the one hand, there were these disciples who there was a difference with them because they hadn't had a chance to hear what was actually taking place. They didn't know personally what Paul and Barnabas and Titus and others had been teaching. And so he was very careful to come down and meet with them and share with them, here's what we've been teaching, here's the gospel. And sometimes when we have a disagreement with someone, it's just because we haven't taken the time to sit down and to lay it out. And, and here we've allowed some sort of division to crop up that wasn't necessary. Talking about it was sufficient. On the other hand, there were these other people who were trying to rip them off. What they wanted was to just stir up trouble. And so with these guys, he said, I didn't give them even an hour of my time. I didn't waste my time talking with them, meeting with them, debating them. I could see they were people I wasn't going to get anywhere with. I knew with the disciples, I, I figured, if they hear the truth, I think we'll be okay. And in fact, that's what happened. We talked about last week the importance of discerning from God actually which category a particular person is in because sometimes we get an idea in our head that person is hopeless it's a waste of time to talk to them they're just trying to rip me off they want me to be miserable and I'm not going to give them the time of day and it might be that actually there's just a misunderstanding on the other hand there are people that we think I know if I just explain it to them I'm sure it'll be fine and you explain and explain and explain and doesn't fix it. It doesn't help. You waste your time. And so we talked last week about the importance of hearing from God as Paul had. He said, I went down by revelation. God showed him, these people, don't even waste your time on them. These people over here, hey, share with them. Give them a chance. Give, take that opportunity to try to you know, get to the bottom of the situation with them. And so here are two different kinds of people, and we talked about how in our lives there are some people that we would be wasting our time with. There are other people who, man, we could accomplish great things if we just explain ourselves to them, and only God can show us who those groups of people are. Now as we come to chapter six, verse 6 in chapter 2, Paul now begins to go into a little more detail about the basis of and, and the explanation of how this went with the disciples, those who were the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, and how he went and met with them privately. And here's the basic description of that meeting that took place, beginning with verse 6, and we'll just read through verse 10. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, 
For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, Cephas is just the Hebrew name for Peter. Peter is a Greek name. When James, Cephas, and John, now James here isn't James and John, the brother of, of he, he had already been martyred at this point. This is probably James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, who was heading up the church in Jerusalem. But when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, not pillows, you know, pillars, they supported the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now, again, in these verses, you have the rest of the description of what happened in Acts chapter 15. And I'm treating it as a unit because of that, but you first have this verse 6 that talks about the fact that God isn't a respecter of persons. He's not impressed by rank or position. And then the, the explanation of how they ended up getting the right hand of fellowship and being at peace. And then finally in verse 10, the reminder to look out for the poor. So these are all related, as we'll see, but at the same time, it's going to seem like you could just finish with verse 6, and that's plenty, and I'm sure it would be, but again, I intend to finish Galatians someday. Verse 6, this whole thing, is it's a weird sentence even, verse 6. It's kind of a run-on sentence, difficult to grasp. It has a, a parenthesis, and then inside that parenthesis, another parenthesis. Because what he really says is, from those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me. That's the basic sentence if you were going to diagram it. But he says, for those who seem to be something, that is people who had reputation, people who were well-respected, the leaders, those who had a certain level of status, those are the people that he went and met with. But as he talks about them, he can't help but say, by the way, and, and parenthetically, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. And then further, parenthetically, God shows personal favoritism to no man. Well, basically, he's saying... The reason he's making the point that they didn't add anything to him is he's trying to say, I didn't go and submit myself to their authority. I didn't go down to Jerusalem to find out what the real scoop was. I knew what the scoop was. I knew what the truth was. But I went down there to try to foster understanding. They didn't add anything to me. They didn't correct me. They didn't fix me at all. But in the telling of that story, verse 6 is really important for us to understand. And it seems on first glance to be sort of disrespectful of the apostles. And, and you think, why is he kind of putting them down in a way? Why is Paul having this sort of attitude? Well, it's not quite that. And in order to understand it, let's turn back a couple of pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just quickly. 2 Corinthians in this book, Paul is completely defending his apostleship because he's been attacked by people who are saying that he's a poser, that he's not the real thing, not a real apostle. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5, Paul says, For I consider, as far as I'm concerned, I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. He doesn't say I'm better than they are. But he says, I am not in any way inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now turn over a page to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, and we get a little bit more illumination on this 
thought. As he says in verse 11, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, I have become a fool in boasting. You've compelled me. You're forcing me to have to flash my credentials. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. He goes, I'm not beneath the highest of the apostles, but I'm nothing. What he's saying is, there isn't a hierarchy as far as God is concerned. And again, that's what we see in Galatians 2, chapter 6. Literally, the wording there in chapter 6, where it's, it's rendered here, um, God shows personal favoritism to no man. Other, uh, other translations would say, God isn't a respecter of persons. Peter had, by the way, quoted that in Acts chapter 10, when God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. It actually originally was a quote from the Old Testament law, over in Leviticus, I think around chapter 19, and again it's repeated in Deuteronomy, God isn't a respecter of persons. Sometimes we don't know what that means. Literally here in the Greek what it says is, God isn't impressed with anybody's face. I like that. But the idea is, God doesn't look at someone and go, ooh, I know who you are. We tend to do that. We tend to believe that there are certain people that are just above others certain people that are worthy of a greater amount of respect. But what Paul was saying here is, hey, these guys, I, I was respectful toward them. I didn't just go, who are you? But he said, you know, the truth is, these guys who God used them in a great way, he said, I'm not going to treat them differently because of that, and, and nor should anyone else, because the truth is, we are all on the same level. I want to tell you something. The Apostle Paul said, I am not any less, I don't take a back seat to the most eminent apostle. The truth is, you don't either. And I don't either. We can all say it. Why? Again, we come back to grace. If grace is about what Jesus Christ did for me, and it's about what he did for you, it means that anything that I do doesn't add anything to that. And if that is the case then for me to elevate someone else above me and to put myself down, I'm okay with putting myself down. And I don't like to be insulted, but the truth is, as long as somebody says, Dave, I think you're a creep, and I'm like, wait a minute. And then they go, but we all are. And go, okay, as long as we understand that, <laughs> I'm okay with it. It's when someone else flashes their credentials that I feel like I need to flash mine. It goes back to, well, to me, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2. I probably refer to it as much as I do any other chapter in the Bible, maybe, between Philippians 2, Philippians 3, Isaiah 53, John chapter 1. Those are probably, to me, the most important chapters in the Bible. But in Philippians 2, Paul's talking about Jesus and what happened at the Incarnation. When he said that he was, he was God, but he didn't hang on to that. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he made himself, in, in our translation it says, he made himself of no reputation. Emptied himself. The word there for making himself of no reputation is the word kenosis. And, and so often Philippians 2 is called the kenosis passage. But what it means is Jesus, who was eminently qualified, he created the world, he created you and me, by him all things hold together. And yet, because we needed his help, he laid all that aside. 
And he didn't come in a flashy way. And he didn't come to overwhelm us with his power. He laid aside all of that. And he made himself of no reputation. I heard Gail Irwin talking about this as I was driving to church this morning. And I know you second service people were probably still in bed when it happened. But Gail has had a great way of describing it. And he said, what's a reputation for? A reputation is to separate you from someone else. A reputation is something to show how you stand out. But he said the problem with that is reputation divides between people. And it's true. And what Jesus did by making himself of no reputation is the same kind of thing that Paul is talking about here in verse 6 of chapter 2 of Galatians. He's, He's painting the picture and saying, look, you need to get this. God isn't impressed with anybody's credentials. And we shouldn't be either. We should respect people for what they've accomplished and praise God for what they've done, but not praise those people. When we start to hold those people on a pedestal for what God's done, we just miss the point of the gospel. And notice in verse 6 where he says, from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Whatever they were, so often that's what credentials are. That's what reputation is. It's living off the past. It's saying, look what I did before, and you ought to see me in a special way because of what I used to do. And whether some old out-of-shape guy bragging about his football days in high school, or whether it's a Christian talking about the days when they were leading people to the Lord all the time, and God did great things for them and built all this and did all that, It doesn't matter. That is past. And you don't come and stand before God on the basis of what you've done in the past. Who did it, actually? Was it God or was it you? And so Paul is going, whatever they were, and this was something that was thrown in Paul's face all the time. You call yourself an apostle. But hey, when Peter and James and John and these guys, when they were sitting at Jesus' feet, when Peter was walking on the water with Jesus, when John was laying at his breast at the Last Supper, hey, you were out there just fighting against Christianity. You're a Johnny-come-lately. You claim to have seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, but people claim all sorts of things. We're not buying it. I don't think you're for real. And what Paul is saying is, hey, the past, it's past. And one of my other favorite passages, the passage after Philippians 2, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I had all this, but forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If we don't forget the past, then we can't move forward into the future. I, I think it was William Hendrickson, um, might have been, I think it was William Hendrickson who said, when you get to the point where your memory of the past is more exciting than your dreams for the future, you're dying. And once we, all we can talk about is what we did one time. The only stories we have aren't what God's doing in our life right now, but it's what he did a long time ago. That's a sign of somebody who has to flash his credentials in order to prove that, hey, I really am or I was what I say I was. And in our society, we do everything that we can to promote on the basis of the past. Tonight, I believe the Oscars are on, and it's a big deal, a big deal to a bunch of Hollywood people, because they're congratulating each other. 
They're handing awards back and forth to each other. People that have won the awards in the past are going to be paraded on stage in their fancy clothes so that they can give awards to the person who's around now. A bunch of self-congratulatory nonsense. And the rest of us minions will sit there and watch it. I, I'm not going to watch it because all the movies that are out this year, I haven't seen any of them, haven't been to the movies. I don't really care who wins the Oscar. Let me just say this. They don't make westerns like they used to. <laughs> but so, so there are certain movies that I wouldn't mind if they walk away broke. But... <laughs> But it's like, really, I'm not going to see the movie. Advertisements were all I needed. But, see, this is the way the world functions. I'm a former Academy Award winner. So, what are you doing now? You know, there are people who have won these great Oscars, and now they're on there as a huckster trying to sell peanuts or something. It's like, it's pathetic. But is that the way we live our lives? It's important for us to understand God sees us all the same, desperate and needy and unable to save ourselves, unable to deliver ourselves, unable to help ourselves or each other. So if you think I'm putting you down when I say you're nothing, we're all nothing. Can we agree on that? Can we just go, yep, we all need help equally. But if that's true, then we need to be really careful because if we start to treat some people differently than others, what we're saying is this isn't true. And the sad thing about that is we lift somebody up on a pedestal, they start to believe it. And someone who at one time God was really using them, they were really talented, it was exciting, and yet all of that can be for naught if you start to believe your own press clippings. We need to be reminded as Paul was, the chief of sinners, even at the end of his life. And he wouldn't let other people flash their credentials. And when they tried to brag about who they were, he goes, look, you want to talk about who we are? I'm not beneath you. You'll see. But at the same time, I'm not beneath you, but I'm nothing. So what does that make you? Nothing apart from God. We don't like that. It's kind of a threat to us. In some ways, we feel like, wait a minute, I should earn some kind of status by all that I've done. If that's the case, grace is out the window. This morning between services, I was reminded that they were doing fingerprints over here in the corner of the building. All of our children's ministers and volunteers, youth workers, and all of our pastors and everyone, we're all getting fingerprinted just to make sure. I mean, I, I don't remember doing anything weird, but just in case, I'm going to check it out. But no, really, it was I've been fingerprinted many times, but we just felt like everyone should do it. Am I really a suspect of being a child abuser? No, but I'll go get fingerprinted. But I did because it was five minutes before a service was going to start. I cut to the front of the line, and the people who had sat through first service all reminded me of this verse and this point. <laughs> and that's good. That's okay. You know, the guy that was doing the fingerprinting didn't bother hurrying or anything. It was like, as far as he's concerned, I'm just another guy. The awful truth, I am just another guy. You know, well, why are you up front? Somebody has to do it. Now, I'm not lower than you, but I'm not higher than you either or anyone else. I take second chair to no one and neither do you because we're all desperate without grace. And we are all infinitely blessed with grace. 
And if we don't understand that, we will waste our time either trying to earn something that's meaningless or following people instead of following God because somehow we're convinced that they are someone. And so Paul makes this point. Now, it's a weird time to make the point because he's about to say that they approved of what he taught. And so you'd think, smart thing would be for Paul to go, look, I went to the most eminent apostles and they let me join. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. But he didn't do it. He's about to tell them that they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And yet before he says it, he goes, let me just say this. This means nothing. This doesn't make me anything. And so, again, whatever they were, what you used to be, no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now, this seems kind of a negative way to, to begin and a negative truth to even talk about. But if we don't understand this, we don't understand grace. As soon as we elevate individuals or elevate ourselves, or as soon as we put ourselves down and feel inferior, do you understand what this means? It's like you're going, oh, so we're all nothing. Yeah, but no one is inferior. Jesus said that the Gentiles compare themselves among themselves. They grade on the curve. But he said it's not supposed to be that way with you. If you want to be great, be a servant. Serve. When you can do that is when you understand that it's okay to be nothing, that everyone else is too. And, and that's where he's laying the foundation. And if you walk around with what the world would call a poor self-image, and a poor self-image isn't thinking nothing of yourself. It's thinking that you're worse than everyone else. And if that's what you think, then you're worthless. It's true. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You think, God can't use me. And so often when we see the truth that I'm flawed, that I'm a failure, that I don't measure up, that I can't do everything I want to do or everything people expect me to do, sometimes I just go, oh, I guess I'll just give up. No, you've got to realize the people who have accomplished great things for God, that God used in powerful ways, they were nothing too. We're not less. It's God's grace. It's the good news that it's about who He is, not about who we are. So that's my first message. <laughs> now he goes on to talk a little bit more about it. He goes, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, another parenthesis, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. But when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is kind of strange for a couple of reasons. For one thing, he basically says, they agreed, I'm the guy for the Gentiles and Peter's the guy for the Jews. But you don't see them abiding by that in a real rigid way. As I mentioned, the first guy to really reach out to the Gentiles of the apostles was Peter in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house. When Paul first got saved, he headed right to the synagogue to reach the Jews. And that made sense because Peter was a crusty old fisherman who would have a hard time relating to the religious stuffiness 
that was in the center of Judaism. But on the other hand, he could relate to Gentiles, probably worked with them in the fishing industry, and it was a lot like them. On the other hand, Paul, this great intellectual Hebrew of the Hebrews, seems like the perfect guy to reach Jews. But God so often turns the apple cart upside down and says, you know what, Paul, you're so qualified with the Jews that I'm going to call you to go to the Gentiles. And Peter, you're so, you have a knack for Gentiles, so I'm sending you to the Jews. It's because God wants us to understand that it's about Him. It's not about us and how qualified we are. And He so often allows us the, the joy of doing something for which we are absolutely unqualified. But also what's going on here, and what's important, I think, for us to understand, is that there was an acknowledgement that their ministries were different that to a bunch of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, it's just unheard of that people wouldn't follow the law and they wouldn't get circumcised. On the other hand, to those Gentiles up there in Asia Minor, getting circumcised seemed like the stupidest thing you could ever do. And so they're looking at each other, and as they begin to communicate, it's like, whoa. But the conclusion that they came to is a powerful conclusion. And it's one that if we don't understand it and we don't learn it, we will never get along with other people, within our families, with other friends that surround us, with our church, with other churches, between churches. If we don't get this, we'll never understand it. And that is God makes people who are different. God does different things through different people. For me, I kind of, the most natural thing for me is if everyone does things my way, likes what I like, does what I do, hey, that's because I'm normal. And I defined, I know, I know, but I define normal based on how close you are to me. And when you, you know, you're different than I am, then something's weird with you. But it's so important for us to understand some people have different ministries, different callings, different ways of doing what God wants them to do. And they may just be off their beam or It may just be that God wants to use them in a different way. I have a choice. Will I let other people be different than me? Or will I insist that they better go along with the way I do things? It applies within a family. I don't know if you've noticed, you who are married, but your spouse is very different than you are. And most of the time when we fight, it's each of us trying to make the other one more like us. When churches have spats, churches disagree and split and things like that, it's so often that it comes about because, well, I don't like the way you do this, and so I'm out of here. Like the story that I think it was Jeff Dorman told me about, a guy who's marooned on a desert island for years. Finally, he gets rescued, and as the boat comes up, he goes, hey, let me show you around my home, and you know, while you're here, and they go, hey, sure, it's great, and there were these three little huts, grass huts, and he said, well, what's this one, and they walked up to it, and he said, well, that's my house, go ahead, check it out, he looks in, sees a little cot, and pretty nice, comfortable little house, and so he goes, that's great, he goes, what's the second building, he said, that's my church, I go in there to worship God, and he stuck his head in there, and there's a little cross, and a little bench where he could kneel down that he had made, and he goes, why, that's great, he goes, what's the third building, And he said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) And that's what happens because we're like, you're not doing it my way and therefore I'm leaving and you're bad. Just because you're leaving doesn't make somebody else bad. 
It might just be that they have a different calling. See, I look at some churches and I just can't figure out what they're thinking. I don't know. what. How in the world can you do that? Or how can you think that that is going to reach people? But then if I look at the fact that even like Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1 said, there are some people that I know they're preaching the gospel for wrong motives. But he said, I'm still happy because they're preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. And so I can look at someone else and go, wow, you have a weird way of doing things. But if people are getting saved, you know what? You go your way and I'll go mine. It's going to be fine. I'll bless you. I want you to do what God has called you to do. And there are churches that if I look at the church, I might think, man, they're not teaching the Bible. They're not really laying it down. Or they're doing this in a weird way or that in a strange way. And look at their people. You know, they're just, they're seeming to be just like those who are influencing them. And I decide that that ministry isn't valid. But the truth is, hey, I can't reach the people who think that that's church. I can't possibly be all things to all people. And as a result, it's important for me to discover this. Different people are different, and that's okay. And so as they extended the right hand of fellowship, it was like they were reaching out and saying, you know what, you just told us the gospel, and we talked about God's grace, and we can agree on that. And so I just bless you. You go listen to what God shows you to do, and you do what God shows you to do, and you'll probably reach different people than I will reach. And if we don't understand that, we'll think that everyone who's different than we are are our enemy. And we're threatened when they don't like the way we do it. It's not necessary. It's not right. We should be able to go, there are all kinds of different people here. Sometimes when I do marriage counseling, I ask the husband and wife to hold hands while I'm talking to them. Sometimes I do it for the reason of just, you know, you feel that warmth and that closeness. But other times it's because I've been in marriage counseling sessions where they started hitting each other. And so, you know, at least it's just one-handed and you can't get real good leverage and step into the punch if you're holding hands. So I... But in so many ways, the answer to our differences, the answer to the things that divide would just be to extend a hand, to try. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to end up doing things your way or that you're going to do things their way. But just to say, you know, I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. We believe the gospel. So let's just extend that hand and say, bless you. You do what God shows you to do. We'll do what God shows us to do. It's something that we need on an interpersonal level. It's something we need on corporate levels as well, just to be able to say, you know, look, it's okay for you to be different. It's okay for another family to be different than our family. It, it, it causes so much trouble when a family catches on to some new truth and then they just have to win everyone else to their truth. Oh, we've discovered this great thing about how to raise our kids and if you won't do it, then you're bad. You don't love your kids. If you send your kids to school instead of homeschooling them, you just don't love them. Or if you don't send your kids to school and instead you're homeschooling, you don't love them. And we make these artificial distinctions. Instead, it should be okay. In fact, it's a really good thing that everyone isn't like you. If everyone was like you or everyone was like me, what a boring world this would be. The truth is God is so much bigger than we are, and he sees our differences, and he goes, this is good. This is something that paints a picture that I want to paint of how big I am. 
But the devil has always tried to get in and convince people that if it's different, it must be wrong, it must be bad. And so you had six to eight million Jews slaughtered during World War II because they weren't of the Aryan race. And Satan just laughed. And you have people in our own country and people in other places even today who will say, if you are a different race or a different religion or a different culture than I am, then you should just be blown off the face of the earth. You shouldn't even be here. You're weird. You're strange. Why do you do things the way you do? The reason people do things differently than you do and look differently than you do is because God isn't just like you. But you reflect a part of who he is, and so does that person who's different than you are, and together we can see who God really is, how broad his mercy is, how great his presence is. And so we can't afford to, in an arrogant sort of way, just decide that everyone needs to be like us. If we do, we'll be at war with anyone. And ultimately what happens, if you expect everyone to be like you, pretty soon you will end up being alone. Because more and more you're going to find out people, even the ones you think are just like you, are really different than you are. The truth is, I mean, I there are some people who probably will come here to this church and they'll see me like wearing jeans and being a slob and they just think, you know, I don't think you respect God enough. And they'll have some good verses to do it. And you know, for me personally, I mean, for 25 years at Calvary Custom Mesa, I wore a suit every Sunday morning. Now if I'm wearing a suit, somebody died. Or, or got married, which is the same thing. But... <laughs> There are some people who kind of like to come to church and go, you know, it feels kind of nice to not have a pastor all dressed up. There are other people who feel like, come on, Dave, put on a show. Spruce it up a little bit. Would it hurt to get a haircut once in a while? Or to, you know? But you know what? There are places that everyone wears a suit. And if you're a visitor today and wore a suit, I apologize to you. But, uh, you know, somebody should have sent a memo. But, you know, there are places where they wouldn't dream of going to church without wearing a suit. And I think, that's great. For some people, dressing up feels like a good thing. I don't know a man that feels good dressing up, but women like to dress up often. And, and so men who are driven by women often find that, you know, it feels good because my wife likes it for me to wear a suit. But that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm really not ridiculing it. I'm, I'll ridicule the way I dress, certainly. You know, it's pathetic. It's embarrassing. But... You know, somebody has to do it. <laughs> so, so here, Paul's just going, can you accept the fact that we're different and extend the right hand of fellowship? And that's ultimately the question. Remember, we started out by going, forget the hierarchy, forget your accomplish, accomplishments from the past, forget your qualifications and your, you know, great resume, and realize, you know, we're all really nothing without the grace of God. And then, can you look and go, God, if you want to make people different than me, that's good. I'm glad you do. I'm glad that there are people who see things differently than I do, because when we sit down and talk, I can catch another perspective. That's the way it's supposed to be, and the right hand of fellowship is what follows. And that's so important for us to have in our lives, to be willing to put our hand out to people different than we are. To not do that ultimately is to be alone to be cut off from everyone. In the meantime, the devil will use it and you'll be fighting all the time with everyone. 
You're trying to defend the way you are and them trying to defend the way they are. And the reality is, you know, we're kind of on different paths right now. And that's good. And that's fine. And that shouldn't be a threat. That's my second message. And now he, he winds it up in verse 10 by saying, the only thing the disciples said was that we should remember the poor. And he said, that was the very thing that I was also eager to do. Now, over in Acts chapter 15, at the end of that church council, they gave a list of some things that they said, look, we bless you, we extend the right hand of fellowship to you, we love you, you've got a job that we wouldn't want, but hey, you have it and that's great. But they said, could you do us a favor? Like, don't eat animals that are strangled and don't drink blood and don't be involved in fornication and, and you know, idol, idol worship. And they go, hey, no problem. We'll, we'll accommodate, we'll, we'll reach out, we'll compromise. But here, something is pointed out that wasn't pointed out there in Acts 15. And that is that the disciples also said, remember the poor. Now, this seems to be totally out of context. This seems to be something that, what does that have to do with it? But there's something huge that it does have to do with, and it brings us full circle from verse 6 to verse 10. The poor. People more hard up than you are, do you, what's your attitude toward them? You look at people who are more wealthy than you are and you might have a great deal of respect for them. You believe somehow that because they have a lot of stuff, they must be doing it right. On the other hand, you look at people who are poor and you go, I can see exactly why they are that way. I see them in line there at the liquor store getting booze and lottery tickets and I know what's happening. I know why they are the way they are. Do you really? Do you really know what's behind where that person is? And he's going, just remember the poor. Now, he doesn't say the poor are your obligation to take care of completely. But he says, keep them in mind. But he's obviously not just saying, okay, just think about them once in a while. In context, he's probably asking them to help out raising money for the Christians who are poor there in Jerusalem. See, in Jerusalem, the early church, when it first started, all these people got saved. And it tells us in Acts chapter 4 that they started a, co a communal living sort of situation. Everybody gave everything that they had, sold their land. Barnabas, in fact, is listed there in the end of Acts 4 as one who had a piece of property, sold it and gave the money to the apostles. Next thing you know, Acts chapter 5, you've got Ananias and Sapphira lying about how much they had given, and, and they died. Later, as you read through the next couple chapters, you see that the church is completely impoverished. I don't have time to go into all the details of why that happened. Trying to live communally might be one reason, because if you sell your land and give the money to the church, ultimately now you're not going to be able to raise your own food. I don't believe that God intended for us to just pool all of our resources. Uh, sometimes it's better that some people keep their money tied up in their business so you can get a job and other people can provide for themselves. But that's for another message entirely. The fact is the Church of Jerusalem was really hard up and Paul practically did a first century telethon by going around with Barnabas and raising money for those Christians and the disciples were going, hey, don't forget us. But for us, there's a message there too. Do we just look past people who are hurting? Do we just look past people who are poor, people who don't have much or struggling? 
Or do we think of them every once in a while and maybe I can help them a little bit. It's why we've started the food ministry so that there's a table of food back there and if anybody needs some and you're having a hard time, you can feel free to go ahead and do it. If you have some food at home you want to drop off, hey, we'll do that. And if we get too much of it on hand, we'll give it to some organizations. But it's the idea of, now, we can't pay your rent and buy you a car and everything else, but it's, it's the thought that counts. It's reaching out and just going, you know, I thought of people who are hurting enough that I bothered to buy a, a, a flat of canned foods while I was at the store in order to give it to them. You know, you look at people out on the street and it's so easy to just marginalize them and discount them. Yeah, we'll work for food. These guys won't work. I hear some of these guys are making a thousand bucks a day begging on the streets. And, you know, yeah, they want money. They're desperate. They're dirty. But I give them money and they're just going to go buy beer or they're going to, you know, waste the money. And, and, and so it's so easy for us to just go, I don't even consider you. I don't think of you. The poor, you deserve to be poor. And I believe that it would be good for us to think about them, to remember them. That would be the heart of our Lord. The Bible has so much to say about the poor. I mean, when you drive by somebody who's out there trying to, you know, get people to give them money, do you even think of them enough to stop and pray for them? Do you even think of them enough to stop and try to talk to them? And I know if you give them money, they'll probably do bad things. You know, I go, well, I could give them 20 bucks, but, you know, it's just going to buy them beer. Well, hey, you give your teenage kids 20 bucks, and you know what they're going to do with it. What's the difference? Sometimes that's our excuse. I, I believe personally that, and I do this periodically, that if the Lord lays it on my heart, I see somebody, and even if I'm afraid they're going to go buy beer with it, I'll just go give them 20 bucks to remind them that God loves them. Just say, this is in the name of Jesus. And if they say, well, what church do you go to? It doesn't matter. It's just Jesus. And, and I pray that if they go and buy a six-pack, that while they're drinking it, they're just going, wow, that's weird. Just Jesus, no hustle, no angle. Now, I'm not suggesting to drop off your beer here and we'll take kegs out. To be, but <laughs> the idea is, how much thought do you even put in? How, we waste money on all sorts of other things. Can't we once in a while just go, you know, this is for the Lord? Again, I'm not saying just give everything you have. If we do that, we'll be like the church at Jerusalem. Other people will be raising money for us. But at the same time, how about just thinking and praying? and reaching out once in a while, sharing just a bit, just to show why, that we don't think we're above those people, that we don't think that our accomplishments have put us in a position where now we look down. Remember, we don't look down on anyone. We don't need to look up at anyone either except for Jesus Christ. But we realize we're on the same level and when you see someone who is struggling and hurting, understand there but for the grace of God is where I am. If you had just made a couple of decisions the wrong way, you could be there too. It doesn't take much. And that goes for people who are in any situation. You know, you may think, oh, somebody who's in an abusive relationship. Well, why did they hook up with someone like that? Think about some of the people you liked if you could have got them into your life when you were younger and what they turned out like. Just remember, just remember we're all alike. Just remember that we're in this together, fellowship. It's two or more fellows in one ship. It's people saying we have so much in common that we'll lay aside our differences, we'll extend the right hand of fellowship because 
you know what? I understand. You're weird, but so am I. And that's a beautiful discovery, ultimately. It frees you from idol worship. It frees you from the trap of people building you up so they can cut you down. And it just lets you realize you have lots of company. And some of that company is way different than you are. But they have your hand. You are, you're with them in spirit. As you will for anyone who names the name of Jesus, who depends and desperately needs the grace of God, and how our lives would change, how they would be different. If we could understand we're all the same, and where we are different, hey, we extend that hand of fellowship. And ultimately, we're always going to remember people who are struggling, people who are having a hard time. When that happens, our lives, our church, starts to look like it's what it's supposed to look like, what it's designed to look like. The alternative is just to play games. See what you can accomplish so that you can point at what you've done in the past and get glory to you and praise to you and so that you can look down at all these minions who depend on you desperately. Let's keep score. Let's see who can get the most money. Let's see who can get the most toys. Let's see who can build the greatest this or the most wonderful that. Stupid. We're all nothing except that. At first, it's a threat. But when you get to thinking about it, we're all nothing. And yet, God is everything. And his grace is extended to us. And we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ if we accept him. And as a result, we need to look at people who are so different than we are that we can't imagine it and then still realize, I, I can put my hand out to you. I can, I can reach out to you. You're not like me. I'm not going to necessarily let you move into my back bedroom. But hey, you have what God's called you to do. I have what God's called me to do. It's good. It's great. We're a team. But we divide up what needs to happen and you know, somebody needs to be this way, and so you're that way, great. Somebody else needs to be another way, awesome. All oh, the grace of God, the goodness that we're all accepted, that we're all loved, that he has paid the penalty for all of our sin. Discovering that is such a freeing thing. It frees us from worshiping people. It frees us from being worshiped by people. Ultimately, it frees us from that arrogance that looks down on those who are poor. And it helps us to realize we've all got it made. Good, good news. Let's pray. Lord, we are just very grateful for what you've done for us. Lord, many of us are insecure. We're hesitant. We have doubts. And it's because way back in the back of our minds, we're afraid that we're really nothing. We put on a good face. We put on a good act. We have a lot of people fooled. But we're walking every day of our lives afraid that somebody's going to notice that we're fake. The house of cards is going to come crumbling down on us. And God, I pray that you would help us to discover the glorious truth that the house of cards can come down because our foundation is in you and what you've done. And it doesn't matter who we really are. It matters who you really are. And we thank you for who you are and who you want to make us. We thank you for including us in your body, on your team, 
and God with our right hand of fellowship. Instead of always giving people the left foot of fellowship, may we give the right hand of fellowship as we reach out to those who are different than we are and go, I am glad that I'm going to be in heaven with you. I'm glad that we're together on the things that matter most. Lord, help us not to divide over things that don't matter, but help us because of the gospel to be accepting of others who are different than we are, and especially of those who are hurting right now, those who might be poor, those who don't have anything to brag about. May we remember that we are not above them. They are not beneath us. In your eyes, because you don't look at somebody's face and decide that they matter because of what they've done. So God, we submit ourselves to you. May we live in the freedom of knowing that without you we are nothing, but with you we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.